Great, Susan. Thank you very much. Um, and I'd like to get the program uh, going. Uh, so, as Susan said, a really exciting one. And we start off with um, with a, a talk by a good friend of ours, Eric Dar. Uh, Eric is a professor um, of the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and chief of the Division of HIV Medicine at Harbor UCLA uh, Medical Center. Uh, Eric today will talk about new strategies uh, for antiretroviral therapy. So, Eric. Great. Thanks, Paul. Susan, thank you so much for including me in today's symposium and uh, welcome all of you. I I really sincerely miss not having the opportunity for all of us to be together face to face. Um, But what I'm going to do is try to tackle what I think are some of the new issues that are evolving in antiretroviral therapy. Uh, And then hopefully we'll have plenty of time for any specific questions about any of these related topics as we move forward. Okay, so these are my uh, my uh, financial relationships. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about evolving issues, about starting therapy, and new strategies for those on therapy. And specifically, key issues and when to start, what to start. Talk a little bit about weight gain with antiretrovirals. Some switch options in suppressed patients. One of the things I believe we do in clinical practice, probably more than just about anything else nowadays. And then a uh, little update on pregnancy and antiretroviral therapy. So let me go ahead and start with this question. According to the DHHS and ISUSA guidelines, which of the following is not considered a preferred option for those considering rapid start antiretroviral therapy? Dolutegravir with TAF or TDF with FTC or 3TC, Victegravir FTC TAF, Dolutegravir 3TC, or Darunavir plus Ritonavir with, again, TAF or TDF with FTC or 3TC. So let's have you go ahead and vote. Okay, so we had about 60% say Dolutegravir 3TC, 30% Darunavir. This is, you know, I think these are, are, are great responses. I think the main thing to recognize is that um, Dolutegravir 3TC, although there's some data I'll share with you that is very promising, right now is not considered a recommended option. It's been a high barrier to resistance drugs like Dolutegravir or Bictegravir with two nukes. And I suspect the reason many chose Darunavir Ritonavir wasn't because this isn't an appropriate option for rapid start, but outside of the context of rapid start, generally not listed anymore as a recommended option. Again, relying more heavily on the integrase inhibitors. So I think the main thing is this is not a setting yet for Darunavir or Dolutegravir and 3TC. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, so coming back to what to start. Um, so I think everybody on this call is aware of uh, the data that's mostly informed our recommendations to recommend therapy for everybody, regardless of clinical status or CD4 count. The START study, I won't spend a lot of time on this study. It's uh, been around for a while, but it demonstrated unequivocally that even people starting with ICD4s, that there was a benefit for the individual in reducing both AIDS and non-AIDS-related complications. And this was clearly true even in people with CD4s over 500. And then we have the the benefit from a transmission perspective, the public health benefit from HPTN052, where we showed where using uh, early antiretroviral therapy as an adjunct to standard prevention message, uh, prevention strategies markedly reduced risk of transmission. Um, And then the partner study, this is partners one, there's partners two, there's opposites attract, all of which demonstrated that partners of people who are stably suppressed on antiretroviral therapy, 
CD4s are usually less than, uh, viral loads are less than 200 or 400. There were no transmission events. And in this case, in these partner studies and opposite attracts, these were people who were uh, um, having frequent condomless sex. So now this U equals U concept where stably suppressed patients really are at no risk of transmitting HIV sexually to their partners. So there's an individual benefit to starting immediately or as early as possible and a public health benefit associated with early therapy. The big issue that's evolving and I think getting increasing traction, so it's really worth discussing, is that of rapid start. So not just recommending therapy to everybody, but actually trying to get them on therapy as soon as possible. And this was the systematic review of antiretroviral therapy uh, in um, uh, groups of individuals who started early. There were four randomized controlled trials in resource-limited settings that all demonstrated that there were really important benefits. And forgive the poor alignment here, but some of these benefits associated with early therapy were really hard endpoints, such as things like died by 12 months, a loss to follow-up, viral suppression at 12 months. So real benefits in resource-limited settings. Um, so we don't have this kind of randomized control data in wealthier countries, uh, but we do have some work that demonstrates, at least from a proof-of-principle perspective, that such a strategy can be applied successfully in these countries. So this was uh, the Ward 86 Rapid ART program. They've been one of the leaders in San Francisco and promoting this strategy and publishing data showing that if you start early, you get people to undetectable quickly and they're able to maintain virologic suppression. And most people who are started, started on one of the second generation integrase inhibitors or less frequently boosted PIs. And it demonstrated proof of principle that it works, um, but doesn't clearly demonstrate from a randomized controlled trial perspective that it improves outcomes. Are people more likely to be engaged or retained in care or more likely to maintain virologic suppression if they started on the same day of diagnosis or not? We don't have that data. And quite frankly, I suspect we never will in wealthier countries. Um, but we do know that this is doable. So we have a variety of different guidelines that have weighed in. And the WHO basically say rapid therapy should be offered to all people living with HIV because there's randomized controlled trials in these countries showing that it actually improves really important endpoints. Both the IAS USA, forget the typo, um, and DHHS have also been increasingly supportive of this strategy. And again, this is true in the absence of randomized control data in some of these countries where these guidelines are followed. And I think the main reason for this is that it's acknowledged that there may be real benefits associated with early therapy, whether it's linkage to care, retention to care, or time to virologic suppression to reduce the risk of transmission or durability of virologic suppression. All may be true, difficult to prove in the absence of randomized control trial, but balanced by the fact that the risk of same-day start if available, is really very small. And I think along with the fact that we're treating everybody because therapy is so well tolerated, easy to take, and efficacious, the same could really be applied to the concept of rapid start. The benefits, mostly theoretical. The risks are well-defined, I think, in most cases, and are very, very small, which is why increasingly both the guidelines and I think people in clinical practice are attempting to start people on therapy 
earlier and earlier, assuming the person is willing and these therapeutic options are available to them, of course. As far as what to start, um, the guidelines have focused on starting with a regimen that includes um, drugs that are safe in the absence of baseline laboratory studies, because when we do these rapid starts, we're often doing it before we have their metabolic panels back or before we even have drug resistance testing back. So we need agents that are relatively safe without baseline labs, and we need anchor drugs that are are rarely transmitted and have a high barrier to resistance. So even if there is some underlying transmitted resistance, particularly to the nukes, that the regimen is likely to still be successful. So originally, this was mostly a boosted PI-based regimen with two nukes, usually a tenofovir-based therapy, since you won't have HLA-B5701 testing back, so you really can't safely use a bacavir. Um, but with the availability of these second-generation integrase inhibitors that are both, again, transmitted resistance, very rare, and have high barrier to resistance, increasingly dolutegravir and bictegravir have been preferred options. Um, we have other options here, like raltegravir is can still considered one of the preferred options, at least by DHHS, although I think rarely used as a first-line option, and dolutegravir 3TC in select patients. These would not necessarily meet the criteria for early start regimen, dolutegravir 3TC, because it only has the one nuke, so is at greater risk if there's any transmitted resistance, and raltegravir having a lower barrier to resistance. So mostly it's been two nukes, usually tenofovir-based regimens with bictegravir and dolutegravir. The STAT study was recently reported. This is the data presented from Glasgow, and it provided some interesting information in a single-arm open-label study um, where people were identified within the first two weeks of diagnosis prior to the availability of laboratory studies or drug resistance testing, and were given dolutegravir and 3TC as a rapid start option with the idea that the therapy could then be modified if appropriate. So the key reasons why therapeutic modification might occur is if somebody, for example, had transmitted 3TC resistance, which is generally pretty rare, or more commonly, perhaps, if they had chronic hepatitis B, where you'd want to use two nucleosides, including a tenofovir-based regimen. But none of those things needed to be done right away. And this is the data, uh, and it looks at the observed as well as the intent to treat an FDA snapshot. And what you can see is that the overwhelming majority of people did indeed get virologically suppressed. And if you look at viral loads greater than 50, regardless of what therapy the people ended up on, what you were left with is nine of the 111 people that stayed in study because there were a considerable number of people who left the study for a variety of reasons unrelated to virologic failure. Only nine of the 111 had viral loads of greater than 50, and the overwhelming majority of these people actually had viral loads of less than 200. So again, single-arm, open-label study, but promising that dolutegravir and 3TC could be used. The other thing you may recall is these are listed as a, this is listed as a preferred option in the guidelines, but for the population that was studied in the pivotal trials, which included people with viral loads less than 500,000, there were a substantial number of people who ended up having viral loads higher than this, but despite that did achieve virologic suppression. So not yet a recommended rapid start option, but one for which there's some pretty reasonable data. So 
Coming back full circle to just standard antiretroviral therapy, I already mentioned this is our current list. Uh, the ISUSA guidelines just recently published the updated recommendations. The main change was they included dolutegravir and 3TC for the population studied in Gemini, and they eliminated abacavir because generally not as well tolerated as tenofovir as a recommended option. Doesn't mean that abacavir is the wrong choice um, or that other options aren't appropriate for select patients, but these are just the recommended options for most people. Now, it looks pretty straightforward and simple. The data is really strong with these options, but what's gotten a lot of attention of late is the concerns related to weight gain. Uh, and I think most of the people in this audience are aware of the attention that's been given from a lot of observational studies and more recently randomized controlled trials, including this advanced study uh, that looked in resource-limited settings at people starting on dolutegravir with a TAF-based regimen, dolutegravir with TDF-based, or a standard of Fabrin's FTC-TDF, which had previously been the recommended first-line option in resource-limited settings. So this was an opportunity to look at efficacy, and indeed they demonstrated non-inferiority for efficacy across these options. But importantly, as, as attention was given to weight, it also looked at weight. And you can see that there was a significantly greater increase in weight in those who received dolutegravir versus efavirenz, a small increase in those who received the TAF-based regimen with dolutegravir versus the TDF. But really much more remarkable what was seen in women. Again, a relationship between both dolutegravir versus efavirenz, but importantly, TAF versus TDF. And this is a substantial amount of weight. At two years, this was an, a mean or an average of 22 pounds of weight gain about, amongst the women enrolled in the advanced trial. And there are a variety of studies that have continued to demonstrate this relationship, both with integrase inhibitors, uh, particularly these newer integrase inhibitors, and TAF over TDF. This was an analysis that looked at eight randomized control trials, and again, demonstrated, depending on how you looked at it, that there was an increase in weight gain amongst those who received integrase inhibitors versus PIs and non-nukes. Everybody gains weight. We've always known that when you start therapy for the first time, but more so with the integrase inhibitors. And broken down by integrase, we see that it's not just dolutegravir, but bictegravir had a similar amount of weight gain, somewhat less than with elvitegravir covacistat. And then when broken down by the nukes, again, TAF more so than the other options, including the TDF here in yellow. Forgive the figure legend. So again, several data sets suggesting a relationship between the second generation integrase inhibitors as well as TAF. And one of the big unanswered questions is how much of this is driven by an actual biologic effect of these drugs on increasing weight? versus perhaps a combination of factors that might include how alternative drugs may be associated with attenuated weight gain. And those are things that all need to be sorted out. In the interim, this is important information for us to share with our patients and also to consider in the context of treatment, but there's still so much we don't know. The amount of weight gain varies depending on the regimen used. I think the data is growing that that's true. It likely is multifactorial. Some drugs may increase weight. Others may attenuate it. Uh, and then the strategies for managing it, other than using alternative options, which isn't something people want to rush to since 
These are our preferred or recommended options for a reason. Um, but there are randomized control trials. They're going to try to see whether any of this is reversible. And this is an ACTG study called 5391, the DO-IT study, which will take people who gained a substantial amount of weight on an integrase inhibitor with TAF-based therapy and then switch them to a non-integrase-based regimen, Duraverine, with either TAF or TDF versus continuing their integrase regimen. So I think the important message is this is something that's getting a lot of attention. It's extremely important, but we don't yet know what to do about it. And I think we need to be really honest with our patients when we have these discussions. So when we talk about first-line therapy outside of the issues of weight, I think one of the other big areas of interest has been these evolving options that perhaps use less drugs. And these were the Gemini trials that looked at dolutegravir 3TC versus dolutegravir FTC-TDF showing high rates of virologic suppression in people who had viral loads at screening of less than 500,000 copies per mil and didn't have hepatitis B, where, again, you would want the tenofovir included in the regimen. So it was that specific population with no underlying resistance, and it showed non-inferiority with extended follow-up here out to three years, showing maintaining virologic suppression, as well as, importantly, no emergent resistance and people on dolutegravir 3TC. So an option that people are considering in the right population and are now considered recommended options in various guidelines. There are also the opportunities for people who are on a traditional three-drug regimen to consider switching, if there's compelling reason to do so, to the two-drug regimen. Again, this is a new data, although there continues to be extended follow-up. This was data from Glasgow looking at the two follow-up for the Tango study, where they took people who were on a stable three-drug regimen, including TAF, and randomly assigned them to stay on it versus switch to dolutegravir 3TC, and were able to show durable suppression at two years amongst those who switched to dolutegravir 3TC. And then the SWORD trials that I think everyone is very familiar with, which also took people who were stably suppressed. In all of these studies, they could not have underlying resistance and switch them to the single-tablet regimen of dolutegravir ropivirine, again, showing stable virologic suppression. Obviously, in this case, it's with ropivirine that needs to be taken with the meal uh, and need to avoid acid-reducing agents and things like that. But again, a viable option. And then newer data with a newer option, this is the duraverine uh, drive-shift study, where they took people who were stably suppressed um, and randomly assigned them to stay on their regimen or switch to Duravarine 3TC-TDF, a single tap regimen uh, that doesn't include an integrase inhibitor or TAF um, and is actually somewhat less expensive uh, and has other potential advantages if we're concerned about things like integrase-based toxicity. In this, they basically demonstrated that they were able to maintain virologic suppression and those people who switched early or switched later, like after a year. The bottom line is good suppression and resistance with Duraverine, although it occurs, like with other NNRTIs, it seems like it occurs less frequently and has been described with some of the earlier NNRTIs. So lots of potential switch options for the right patient population. Now, another area of interest for SWITCH is all of those trials focused on people without underlying resistance. So they took pristine people without underlying resistance and demonstrated that you could switch them to simplified or alternative options. 
The first hint that we may be able to successfully treat people with underlying resistance with our current classes was the Donning study using the Dolutegravir-based regimen. So these were people who were virologically failing, and they randomly assigned them, they were failing an NNRTI-based regimen, they randomly assigned them to Dolutegravir with two nukes, as long as they could prove that at least one of the nukes was fully active versus lopinavir ritonavir with two nukes. And as you know, this study was stopped early because the actual integrase-based regimen fared better than the lopinavir-ritonavir-based regimen. And some of this may be related to some of the issues of lopinavir-ritonavir um, with tolerabilities. I can't say what would have happened had this used a more contemporary first-line protease inhibitor-based regimen. But the important thing here is how high the rates of suppression were amongst those who received dolutegravir, even in those who had underlying resistance, the 184V being by far and away the most common. So we learned with virologic failure, so there's every reason to believe that somebody who has underlying resistance to a nuke, for example, may be able to switch to an integrase-based regimen if they're not already on it. And we have a few studies that have actually demonstrate that this is the case. This is this Gilead study 4030, uh, where they took people who were stably suppressed on dolutegravir-FTC-TAF, about 20 to 25% had underlying nuke resistance, and they switched them to bictegravir-FTC-TAF. So integrase to integrase, but a new integrase that could be given with a single tablet regimen with FTC-TAF, maintained virologic suppression overall in both those who remained on their original regimen versus the switch. And that was true even in small numbers of people who had a substantial nuke resistance, like K65R or multiple TAMs, and certainly people who had the 184V maintained high levels of suppression. So we've learned that we can start with an integrase. We can start with an integrase perhaps with just one nuke, but we can also take people who may have underlying resistance who are suppressed and switch them to a second-generation integrase inhibitor with two nukes, even with some underlying resistance present in the background. And the BRAVE study did a similar thing, only in this case, it wasn't people who had underlying resistance who were stably suppressed on dolutegravir. It was on a variety of other drugs, including first-generation integrase inhibitors and non-nukes. So it was a mixed bag of individuals who were suppressed. A substantial number had underlying resistance, and they were able to switch to Victegravir FTC tau. So again, more and more options for people, even with underlying resistance. Um, where's the net? What are the next steps, perhaps, for novel combination regimens? Um, Islatravir, a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor being developed both for first-line therapy, for people with a virologic failure, as well as for prevention as a high barrier to resistance. It's active against many um, viruses that have multiple nucleoside resistance. Um, it has a long half-life. So this was an early phase one, two, a phase two study where they took people, got them suppressed on Islatravir, Duravirine, and 3TC with different doses of Duravirine. Once suppressed, then they switched them to a two-drug regimen of different doses of Islatravir with Duravirine, showed pretty good levels of viral suppression. The numbers are small here, 30 per group. Very few people with viral loads are greater than 50, and the overwhelming majority of these people had viral loads that were less than 100. So again, very promising and is moving forward in a variety of phase three trials as novel treatment options to perhaps 
allow us to simplify regimens and increasingly consider two drug regimens over three. So a quick question. Um, according to the DHHS guidelines, which of the following is not considered a preferred option for those who might become pregnant on antiretroviral therapy? Raltegravir, Victegravir, Dolutegravir, or Darunavir, Ritonavir, obviously all given with nucleosides. Go ahead and vote. Okay, great. So we have a, a split, about 40% said Victegravir, 40% said Dolutegravir. Um, and again, these are great choices. Uh, and this is represents where I think we've had some movement. So let's go to the next slide in the field. So first of all, um, we have the impact study that I think has influenced treatment in pregnancy. Um, and this was looking at dolutegravir with FTC-TAF versus FTC-TDF versus the standard FTC, um, efavirenz FTC-TDF. Um, this was a study looking at um, pregnant women to see if they can get their viral loads undetectable. It was a chance to compare dolutegravir to an efavirenz-based therapy, and indeed, uh, a higher proportion got undetectable with dolutegravir than efavirenz, but high rates in both groups, 98 versus 91%. And if anything, from a safety perspective, TAF fared a little better than TDF. So we hadn't had a lot of data with TAF. There were some concerns in the absence of data about using TAF as a matter of routine. But I think with this study, there's a higher comfort level. And this is data on nucleoside recommendations in the most updated guidelines for perinatal their treatment and perinatal infection. Uh, and they basically now have TAF listed as an alternative for those who are starting therapy, as well as for those who are considering conceiving while on therapy. So TAF, I think we have more and more data, probably can use with increasing comfort. The big issue has been dolutegravir. Everybody is familiar, I think, with the Botswana data originally came out, showed about a nine-fold increased risk of neural tube defects for those who received dolutegravir at the time of conception compared to alternatives or dolutegravir after conception. Follow-up data expanding the denominator markedly demonstrated it went from 0.96 to about 0.67 uh, to 0.3 in the most recent data from last summer. Um, or was uh, around 0.19. And these are just curves showing dolutegravir at conception versus non-dolutegravir at conception. Dolutegravir started during pregnancy versus efavirenz at conception or women without HIV. And the bottom line is these curves suggest that there is either no or very small increased risk associated with dolutegravir when they expanded the number of exposed individuals to over 3,000. And it's based on this emerging data and the suggestion that the risk is very, very small, that again, the guidelines have been updated and they now list in this important category of non-pregnant people who are trying to conceive. While it had previously focused on raltegravir and ritonavir-boosted PIs as preferred options. Now, dolutegravir is listed as preferred options with recommendation that women be counseled about the emerging data and whatever uncertainty there might be. But it is now listed as one of the preferred options. Victegravir remains the one for which there's insufficient data 
to recommend at this point. So in summary, rapid start antiretroviral therapy is increasingly the standard of care for those who are willing. Weight gain is getting a lot of intention, but we don't yet know what to do about it. Dual therapy has gotten a lot of traction, both for first line and for switch options. And there are simple INSTI-based regimens that are now options, even for those who have underlying nucleoside resistance. And then finally, dolutegravir and TAF are emerging based on the new data as options for those who are or might get pregnant. With that, I will stop. Thank you all very much for your attention. And we have a little bit of time for any questions that you might have. Thanks so much, Eric. Um, great talk. Um, I'm sorry for the technical uh, glitches along the way a little bit, uh, but hopefully we've uh, we've got those ironed out. Uh, we've uh, gotten uh, some of the Q&A time uh, taken up already, so we'll just jump right into it. I have um, lots of really good questions. Um, First of all, there's uh, there's a, a lot of interest in the weight gain, um, uh, and uh, one person says, "What what's the pathophysiology behind this? Is there uh, good research going on in that?" I I know there is research. I don't know how good it is, and at least to my knowledge, we don't have a biologically plausible explanation for it. There's a lot of in vitro and ex vivo data that's going on to try to explain why this might be happening. But at this point, we really don't know. I think what we know is that the data seems to get stronger and stronger, that there is an effect. Right. We just don't know why and what to do about it yet. Thanks, Eric. And I have a couple questions that are sort of related. One uh, 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 attendee uh, worries about the bio creep, as uh, he calls it, of kind of moving to increasingly kind of maybe simple, but maybe a little bit weaker regimens with some of the some of the two drug approaches. And also another uh, participant uh, worries about the long term durability of of um either bictegravir or dolutegravir um, uh, with high-level nuke resistance with the two-drug approaches. Um, we, we know from the study that was done with, with monotherapy with integrase that some selection for resistance uh, happened. Do we worry about that still? Yeah. These are obviously really great questions. I think we were all pretty cautious, especially with the Gemini study. In fact, most of the guidelines, you know, didn't rapidly embrace the 48-week data, even though, Normally, two large registrational trials with 48 weeks of data would be more than enough to convince us to modify the guidelines. In fact, it was for the registrational trials with dolutegravir and two nukes and bictegravir with two nukes. But I think everybody acknowledged that we didn't have that kind of experience with two drug regimens. And the guidelines really sort of paused before they recommended it, waiting the two-year data. Now we have three years of data. I think the data for first-line therapy, the durability Again, no emerging resistance, which is a pretty remarkable high bar, not right. just sustained suppression in most people, but no emerging resistance. And I think the same thing will be true with the switch strategies. I think if two drugs works for first-line therapy, you'd think it would work for switch. But we do need extended follow-up and, and studies like the 4030 study. Uh, we are getting it with Dawning, and, and I'm sure we'll see more follow up with Brave. So I appreciate people's concerns and desires to be conservative. And I think we do need to be, you know, careful before we just embrace whatever is new and off the shelf. But the data seems to get stronger and stronger and continues to be pretty compelling. Uh, another uh, um, 
person asks about the continued use of TDF. Um, given what we've learned, uh, isn't a little weight gain better than the, than the renal toxicity and bone loss, uh, that trade-off? Uh, you can speak to that? Yeah, so I think there's lots of reasons to wonder about what should we do with TDF. You know, the overwhelming majority of people who don't have comorbid conditions probably tolerate TDF just fine. Um, I'm not sure there's a reason to use it unless there's a compelling one, like there are issues, concerns that related, related to costs and things like that. Um, so I do think it's worth considering. I don't think that we should abandon TDF as this highly toxic drug after having used it for years safely, especially in people without comorbid conditions. So right now, most people are ending up on TAF. Most of our combination regimens include a TAF-based option. Costs have not been prohibitive for TAF, um, but TDF is still, I think, a viable option. Now, if we use that in the consideration of weight gain in itself, I think we are probably jumping the gun a little bit as far as how much we really know about using different options and particularly switching in people who've gained weight. Just like abandoning integrase inhibitors, I really think we need more data before making big decisions about modifying our therapeutics based on the concerns about weight right now. Got it. Got it. Um, another uh, person asks uh, if the dolutegravir data in pregnancy was corrected for folate use. Yeah, so it's a great question, right? And that was always one of the concerns about the Botswana experience was that they don't have um, fortification uh, with folate. And we know that folate is a risk factor for neural tube defects. And it was always a concern about how safely we can extrapolate the Botswana experience to what we see in resource countries where we do fortify our wheat and things like that with folate. I don't think there's a way to specifically adjust for that in the Botswana experience, but I think we can consider that while we also, when we look at how little impact we now have with 3,500 plus women exposed in Botswana, and that it's marginal, if at all different, than what we're seeing in non-dolutegra-based therapies. If you build into that fact, and we use folate routinely in other countries, I think it makes you feel even more comfortable about the new recommendations of considering dolutegravir as one of the recommended options for women who are thinking about or might be at risk for getting pregnant. Eric, without showing your slides again, there are several people that, that would like you to quickly recap uh, drugs that are considered preferred or safe in pregnancy. Yeah, so in pregnancy, the, probably, you know, a couple things, a couple points to make that are really important is when you, what you shouldn't use. Um, and one of the clear things that we shouldn't be using in pregnancy that is still used in clinical practice are cobacystat-based regimens. We do know that during pregnancy, cobacystat levels go down it reduces the level of the drug they're boosting, and there's actually evidence of increased risk for virologic failure. But the main focus otherwise, we're still using raltegravir, now dolutegravir, the non-cobacystat boosted PIs, so ritonavir boosted PIs, and from a nuke perspective, abacavir, assuming they're HLA-B5701 negative, TDF, and I think TAF, although considered an alternative, um, the data is getting stronger and stronger as a potential option. Oh, great. And then we have just a few seconds left. Um, comments about inflammatory markers um, going from three to two drugs. Some Spanish uh, studies uh, looks like they have maybe more inflammation. 
Yeah, I think it's it's it got a lot of attention. Gosh, wait, well, over a year ago. And I just don't know if that data has been validated or what the clinical relevance of it is. Got it. Got it. So it's a really important thing for us to all continue to follow. And I think if I'm right, that your slides are going to be available to the attendees after the course. So if you have if they want to go back and look at some of these details about recommended regimens, you'll have an opportunity to do that. So thanks so much, Eric. That was a that was a great whirlwind. Uh, and I'm going to turn it now back to Susan Buckbinder.